and welcome to the Careers by Design, the Interviews podcast. I am Sharon Belden Castingoy, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado, whose autobiography, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics, was recently published by Penguin Press. Now, Governor, I usually start out by asking people about their childhood hopes and dreams, but in your case, I'd like to go back a bit further than that. Can I ask you about your ancestor, Anthony Morris? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and, and it's funny, I never knew this uh, growing up, um, but he was a, one of the very early, early settlers of Philadelphia um, and uh, ended up opening a brewery uh, originally it was a malting shop, but then they also took over a brewery that was close at hand. So they had one of the very first breweries in Philadelphia. Uh, and then he went on into public life and actually ended up uh, running for and becoming an early mayor of Philadelphia. So in this funny way, he anticipated by almost 300 years my own professional evolution. Very interesting. So then let's flash forward a bit to your own childhood. If I were to go back in time to the early 60s and gather your elementary school teachers together and tell them that you'd become the governor of Colorado, how do you think they'd react? Uh, in, in stark disbelief. <laughs> uh, as a kid, you know, I had thick glasses and acne and uh, it's funny, it, it does. And when I look back, I recognize that how you feel about your appearance does color so many things about how you approach life and, and, and what you do, what you choose to think you can do. Uh, and I've, you know, I mean, I was intensely competitive and, and driven in many ways, but I, I knew that I was never cut out to be a leader or, you know, someone that, that other kids would vote for in a school election. I mean, I never ran for student council or anything because I knew it would be a joke because I was you know, I was this kind of goofy looking kid who tried to make jokes, ended up teasing people. I was trying to make them like me, <laughs> but I did the opposite. Uh, so I had a, a checkered career socially kind of growing up uh, all through elementary school and even uh, through middle school. Your mother was a Vassar graduate, as I understand, and a big believer in the transformative power of education. How did you feel about her decision to send you to the Haverford School? Um, you know, she had talked about it before, and I said, you know, that was a joke. I wanted to stay with my friends and go to public school. Uh, but when I went into the middle school, which was much, much larger than the public elementary school I had, and I started getting bullied. I mean, I come home almost every day in tears. And and so that, that spring, after a, a whole year of misery, uh, and she had talked to her sister. I think she was going to borrow some money. But basically said, what do you think about going to the to the private school? I, I was much more receptive than I had been even, you know, a year and a half before. And my understanding of the Haverford schools, that it was all boys, you know, fairly conservative. You had a strict dress code, things along those lines. So how did that then lead you to Wesleyan? Uh, probably a reaction. Uh, <laughs> you know, the it was very strict, coat and tie every day, uh, you know, you had to, your hair had to be up over your ears. Uh, you know, it's funny when I went to, and this is, you know, this is the 60s. So even every media, the television, the uh, the, the radio, the music, everything was about the, the Vietnam, Vietnam War, which most of us thought was, you know, 
ridiculous and a foolish war to be fighting. Uh, there was a sense of kind of rebellion and, and independence. And, and I was a pitcher on the high school baseball team, team and the coach at, at Hartford said, if you're going to pitch this last game, you need to get your hair cut. And the headmaster supported him. Uh, so I loved baseball, so I cut my hair. Uh, but then I didn't cut it again for all the, the, you know my entire first four, four and a half, five years at, at Westland. I just you know <laughs> I was uh, I was rebellious. And what made you decide to well first what made you decide to attend a liberal arts college in the first place? Well, I'd been raised. Um, I mean, my mother really felt that Vassar College had changed her life, and and not just introduced her to lifelong friends and, and, and opened her opened her mind up to things that she hadn't really thought about before, but it really opened doors for her, um, in both professionally and, and socially. Uh, and so, you know, my, my eldest sister couldn't decide between Vassar and Wellesley, and she went to Wellesley, and my brother, he, he went to, he, Vassar didn't take men in those days. He's seven years older than myself, and he went to Wesleyan, uh, and then my uh, my sister was just a year and a half older than myself. She couldn't decide between Vassar and Stanford, so she went to Stanford. So when I applied to Wesleyan, I got on the on the waiting list. I mean, part of it was I I believed in liberal arts education. I just wasn't sure where I was going to get it. And and Wesleyan put me on the waiting list, and my mother immediately said, and I hadn't applied to Vassar, but that was their first year of of admitting men. And my my mother was overjoyed and said, oh. I bet I could, you know, I have a friend at the admissions department. Maybe let me put in a good word for you. Um, luckily, Wesleyan let me in off the waiting list uh, two days later. And why was Wesleyan appealing to you? Well, because I knew it. My brother had gone there. Um, and, and through him and his friends, uh, I was aware of, you know, the fact that they believed, you know, the majority or at least an equal part of your education occurred outside the classroom and that they had been pushing diversity. At that time, you know, I, I entered in 1970, and, and my class, the class of 74, uh, was 22% uh, kids of color. And, and I just thought that made a lot of sense that, that, you know, part of going to college was you wanted to meet people from all different walks of life. From uh, They had a huge effort uh, to, you know, use a significant part of their endowment for scholarships. Uh, and, you know, they major initiative to get more African-Americans to, to uh, go to Westland, which meant we had some, some conflict on campus from time to time, uh, and, and racial issues were often sensitive. But that kind of real-world environment, I mean, it really did become a big part of, of my education, it was not just in classrooms, but, but especially who, who, I got to, who I was exposed to and who I got to, to, to spend time with and get to know. Tell me about how you got involved on campus. Well, that you know, I was uh, I lived in at a, uh, at two thirty Washington Street, which was an old fraternity house that they Wesleyan had built a, a small dormitory on the back, just two floors. I think there were ten rooms on each floor, maybe not even that much, maybe seven or eight rooms on each floor. Uh, and in the old part of the house, they had some upperclassmen who were juniors and seniors. Um, and they were kind of my first introduction to campus life, and they were true rebels, long hairs, huge Grateful Dead fans. Uh, so that kind of fit in with my my own little rebellious streak and, and desire to make the world a better place. Uh, 
so that you know I got involved in you know this playing softball I played on the soccer team my freshman year uh in the last half of my freshman year they moved me up to the varsity so I I was engaged in the in the campus uh life but I was also hope, hopelessly unprepared uh, I mean I never had a girlfriend in high school I mean I really was a true nerd kind of a dork <laughs> and you know so I I met this kind of amazing woman and, and she kind of liked me and we kind of hit it, really hit it off and then when she really kind of saw how inexperienced and, and, and how kind of nerdy I was you know very justifiably she kind of withdrew and figured this wasn't didn't look like such a great decision and you know I was I, I, I mean I just wasn't prepared for that kind of that wasn't part of the education I was prepared for so I dropped out after my freshman year and spent you know a summer working on turning an old sardine factory up on the northern coast of Maine into an alternative school. And then I stayed for six months in the fall uh, and was a, you know, a teacher's assistant at that school, which in a funny way just perfectly dovetailed with kind of the Wesleyan experience, you know, part classroom, but then also part real, real world. Did you have any particular career aspirations when you got to Wesleyan or even as you were approaching graduation? Well, I had, I had always thought, and again, I had thick glasses and acne, I was a skinny kid. So I figured if I was ever going to get a girlfriend, which for many years did not seem possible, uh, I should, I had to be creative in some way. And uh, at various times, I tried to. I took a class on how to design and and make stained glass windows. I took jazz piano. I took uh, classical piano. I did all this stuff, but but in the back of my mind, I thought I should be a writer. Uh, and so I toyed and and really seriously thought about becoming a journalist um, when I graduated, or or you know writing the Great American Novel. Although some of my closest friends were very blunt in their assessment of my writing skills, which were. They were not very impressive, which unfortunately kind of matched the opinion of most of my teachers. Not all of my teachers, but most of my teachers. Um, so, you know, despite having taken all these kind of classes in creative arts, you know, advanced photography, and you know, and I, and I was good in most of them, but nothing was. They weren't. They weren't a calling for me. So I was, you know, I, I still was confident. I thought I figured I'd find something to do. But my career, I did. I wasn't exactly sure what that was going to be as I was graduating. Tell me about that aha moment that you had that led you to geology. Well, there was a uh, Wesleyan offered a, a class, an elective. Uh, I think it was a, a, a two hundred level or three hundred level geology class, uh, earth environmental class, uh, in land use planning, and it was taught by a not by a professor, but by a senior uh, uh, geologist who worked at the U.S. Geological Survey uh, in their uh, uh, Middletown office, a guy named Skip Pezzel. And he, he would lecture, give a three-hour lecture every Wednesday night, and then have two workshops during the week on, you know, how to map various aspects of, of, of land use uh, information, you know, kind, the kind of soil types and, and topography and how a, a treatment you know, a, a, a perk test would take place. Uh, anyway, I sat in on this class. I went down with my friend Tracy Killam, who was a year behind me, and she loved this class. So I went down and checked just to check it out one Wednesday night, and I took like six pages of notes. I loved it. And I remember going back and saying, I've taken all these English classes and 
all these other classes that haven't really satisfied me. And here's a class where I took all these notes. I wasn't even prepared for it. So I went back and took started take, going there every Wednesday for the last, I think, five or six classes and asked the professor, you know, how could I pursue this? And he's the one who told me that Wesleyan had a special master's program for people with non-science backgrounds. You'd go for one or two years as a special student and take chemistry, physics, calculus, et cetera, and also take the basic geology classes. And then they, if you showed that you were willing to work hard enough and master this new information, they would uh, accept you into the master's program. And two and a half years later, you would get, uh, you know, get a, a master's degree in earth and environment and earth and environmental science. Although I always called it just geology. <laughs> okay. And when you, it, it took you about 10 years total, as I understand it, from the time you started at Wesleyan to the time you finished your master's degree. Yeah, because the first year as a special student, I was I needed a break, and one of the professors, Yelly DeBoer, uh, had a research project down in uh, Costa Rica, and I told him I was going to take a year off, and he was afraid I wouldn't come back to geology. Right. So he said, "Well, I'll I'll make sure you get paid." And of course, I did get paid four dollars a day, w with which I had to pay my food and and my whatever ho little shabby hotel I'd stay in. Uh, but I went down there and spent about nine months. I drove a, a old beat-up Volkswagen that my brother, who at this time was an automobile mechanic, I drove it across Mexico and then down through uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, uh, 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 into uh, you know through Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, into into Costa Rica, and and really loved it. Uh, I mean, it was one of the one of those transforming. Uh, years of my life where I learned a lot about geology and field geology. I learned a lot about Latin America and, and Central America, South America, Mexico, that whole culture. Uh, and then I also learned a lot about myself and came back to Wesleyan the next year, uh, re-engaged myself. So if you include that year off, I mean, it was almost 10 years. And so they had, at one point, a bunch of the professors got together and and got a piece of sheepskin, a real parchment, and they they gave me a uh, they gave me tenure as a student. <laughs> I'm sure some of the faculty are jealous of that tenure piece of paper. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so tell me about that first position you accepted as a geologist. That's what took you to Colorado, I believe. Yes. So I I finished my master's. Um, actually, tried to renovate. I, I did renovate a couple of houses, old historic houses in Middletown. But then I came out to uh, uh, Colorado because in those days it was either Houston or Denver if you had, had a geology degree. Uh, and I thought Colorado just sounded, you know, more 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 exciting, more challenging. So I came out here in 1981. Now you obviously put in a lot of work towards becoming a geologist, but when you were laid off from your position, you decided to leave the field entirely. Was that difficult, shedding that professional identity of geologist? You know, it was surprisingly hard because, you know, I never had had an identity and I loved, I loved that identity. I loved being a geologist. And if I hadn't been laid off, I probably never would have quit. And yet I knew in my heart, even, even as I was working as a geologist, that in many ways, it wasn't satisfying to, to some of my essential characteristics, right? I'm, I'm a great extrovert. I love talking to people, whereas a geologist spends most of their time alone doing solitary work, making maps to try and figure out 
what exactly the, the rock strata looks like a mile or two miles underground. I mean, it's intellectually challenging. It's, I, I still love it to this day, but doing it every day, all day, I felt like I felt almost claustrophobic. And, you know, when I couldn't find a job as in geology, I ended up, you know, it took a couple of years to pull this together and raise the money and find the right building. But we took an old warehouse in uh, in what they call lower downtown Denver and opened a brew pub, a restaurant that brews its own beer. And I knew the first day when I walked into that brew pub that, that A, not only was I going to like it a lot more, but that I was going to be a lot better. And it's kind of interesting. I would have stayed a geologist my whole life if I hadn't been laid off. And in a funny way, sometimes when bad things happen to you, uh, they they can turn out to be really good things. Uh, why did you decide to stay in Denver? Why not start a brew pub in Philadelphia or Middletown, Connecticut, for that matter? Well, Denver and, and much of the Rocky Mountain West, but especially Denver, I mean, it's a place where a lot of young people were moving to. It didn't matter who your grandparents were. I mean, really what mattered was who you were, right? What your dreams were, what you were, how hard you were willing to work to achieve those dreams. And I love that sense of, of freedom and, 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 you know, really true opportunity. What made you decide to get so involved in the local community while you were building that business? Well, part of it was my nature. While I was building the restaurant, it was easy to serve on nonprofit boards and committees but part of it also was it was good for the business, right? I'd, I'd, I'd serve on a board. Uh, if I was on a subcommittee or a committee, I'd have the first meeting in my restaurant, and I'd buy, you know, everyone, I'd buy the coffee or tea or Coke or whatever people were drinking. Uh, and then hopefully people would come back and say, oh, that Hickenlooper's a good guy, and I kind of liked his restaurant. It's a beautiful big warehouse in this kind of old abandoned historic district downtown. Maybe I'll bring my family back. So it was it was good as a as a way to market my business, but you know it's funny after about ten years. I mean the first five or six years we didn't make all that much money and we worked sixty and seventy hours a week, but then after a certain point of that, we ended up uh, really finding out that I mean all of a sudden beer craft beer took off, and this historic neighborhood we worked on so hard it took off. Uh, oh my gosh, hear that? Can you hear that siren? I can. <laughs> I apologize. That's anyway, right. th this whole this is cinema verite. Right. <laughs> uh, this whole enterprise took off, and I realized that a big, the, maybe the best part of every week was when I was going to these nonprofit board meetings and committee meetings, and that's you know that was a real revelation to me that suddenly I didn't have to work so hard anymore. Uh, you know, by probably by 1998 or 1999, I, I didn't have to work at all. I mean, the, the businesses we'd opened restaurants in different cities; they were all going gangbusters. Uh, it was beyond my wildest imagination, uh, and yeah, and the real part of my week I looked to, forward to was often you know these various meetings. At what point did you recognize that you had become a successful business person? Did, that you started identifying yourself as a business person? Oh, you know, probably. You know, those first four or five years were kind of up and down. I mean, we did have, we opened a, a billiards hall, an upscale billiards hall on the second floor that was about 12,000 square feet, big place. And we opened that right at the end of 1992. And so 1993, the sales did really well for the first time. It was our fifth year. And it was 
sales were up about 50%, and, and suddenly we were making significant money. But then in, in two years later, uh, partly because of the work of all of us who were trying to settle this old abandoned warehouse district, but the city elected to, to locate and opened in, in the summer of 1995 Coors Field. So we Denver finally got a Major League Baseball team. We opened Coors Field, and then our sales went up another 50%. At, at that point, you know, I'd made it, and I mm-hmm. knew I'd made it. And then it was just a question of, you know, doing other projects. And, you know, I bought, you know, with the cash flow from the restaurant, we bought some of these old warehouses, which were still very inexpensive uh, in the early 90s. And we started using them with, uh, renovating them with, you know, but we always tried to have a higher purpose, right? We do affordable housing. We do all different kinds of uh, uh you know, community benefit type efforts. Tell me about your decision to run for mayor of Denver. Is a career in public service something you would ever previously consider? Never in my life. And it was it was basically several friends who I respected. You know, we've had a big battle over the sale of the old name Mile High Stadium. The taxpayers were building a new stadium and the, the stadium district decided to sell the naming rights to lower the, the burden. So I kind of led the fight to keep the name Mile High Stadium. And in the end, we got a compromise. It was sold to Invesco Funds. It became Invesco Field at Mile High. And after that, these several friends came up and said, you ought to run for mayor. The present mayor is term limited out in, in the next in three, in three years from now, and, and you should consider running. And it had honestly never, never entered my mind. But three people in the course of a month or two independently came up to me and, and made these suggestions. So at that point uh, – I started you know, going around the country and using some of my connections to the restaurant to get and meet mayors and ask them, can you make a difference? Uh, would I be any good at it? And would I like it? And, you know, after I spent almost a year and a half doing this, and I really got excited about, you know, A, you could make a difference, and B, you know, all my customers were always criticizing every elected official. And I kept telling them, hey, them is us. This is America, and we should be if – you, if you're that critical of who's elected, you should get involved. And they turned the tables on me and basically somehow convinced me to run for mayor in 2003, which, again, no one thought I had a snowball's chance in hell of winning. Uh, but we did – we did, never did any negative ads. We just talked about a positive vision for the, for the city, um, tried to use the lessons of small business uh, in, in terms of affecting change, and, and somehow we won two to one. How did you feel when it was first suggested to you that you run for governor? Well, by that time, I mean, the first time was after I'd been in office two and a half years, and I just, I still didn't know my way to the restrooms. Um, but I liked it. I knew this was something that was, you know, I was working with really smart people from all different walks of life. In a funny way, my Wesleyan education had really prepared me to, to, to work effectively with very diverse populations, very, very different types of people. And, and I loved it. So when the, the Governor uh, Ritter, my predecessor, decided not to run for re-election, and by this time I'd been mayor almost eight years, I felt I understood how a governor could be successful and, and why it would be worth the sacrifice of my time and effort. Uh, and, you know, I took it on. What had you learned as a geologist, as a real estate investor, a brew pub owner, that led to your success in public service? 
Well, certainly as a, as a geologist, I learned how to use facts and the scientific method and to try and think about complex problems from, with multi, multiple possible solutions and collect information or design experiments that would shed information on all these possible solutions. And my thesis advisor, Jim Gutman, uh, at Wesleyan had been a, a great, you know, supporter of this this kind of scientific custom, uh, common sense. He and, and Peter Patton, I think, still teaches at Wesleyan. Both were tremendous models in terms of how to how to use science in in everyday life. Uh, as a, in the restaurant business, I mean, I think almost every elected official should sp- spend some time running a big, high volume restaurant. And Wine Coop Brewing Company, my restaurant in Lodo, was. I mean, on a busy Friday night, we could do 1,100 dinners, a very, very busy restaurant. And when you're in that kind of environment, everyone's on the team, right? In in rough water, everybody paddles, as we say out here. And we would have, you know, when you're in the weeds, it doesn't matter whether you're tall or short or man or a woman or black, brown or white. doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. You're part of the team, and everyone works together. And, again, that's part of the Wesleyan heritage that I that I got out of Wesleyan and it paid big dividends in the restaurant business and you also learn in the restaurant business that there's no margin in having enemies and obviously many of our elected officials could stand to learn that question that lesson as well uh, that no matter how upset no matter how, how unreasonable that customer may be you you, de- you always have to go and listen to them and spend more time with them because if they leave really, really pissed off, they're going to go out and, and, and ruin your reputation forever. Uh, the joke I always would, would make also was running, whether you're running a big volume, a big high volume restaurant or running a large American city, there are three things that are always the same. You never have enough capital. In both cases, you have a diverse group of people you've got to make into a great team. And in both cases, the public is always pissed off about something, hmm. which, is, which is generally true, both in restaurants and in running a city or a state. Right. Right. How has being governor with all its attendant responsibilities changed you? Oh, I think it's made me appreciate how difficult these jobs are. And I'm not quite so quick to, you know, criticize uh, the work of others uh, when trying to figure out how to do legislation. Uh, I also see more close up, more, more closely the flaws of our political system. But I also appreciate that most of our public servants, people that work in in city government or work in state government, they're really trying to do the best they can. They're working as hard as they can. And, you know, when they make mistakes, it's easy to throw them under the bus. Uh, But to do so is really a disservice. And in almost every case, they are really, you know, they're they're taking less money and yet working harder just because they, they believe in that common good. And finally, how do you hope to spend the rest of your working life? What do you still want to learn? Well, the only thing I really hope is that I keep learning. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, you know, in the end, if, as is sometimes asked, you know, when you when you look back over your life, all in, was it worth it? You know, I want to be able to say it was worth it. I want to, you know. My dad died when I was a little kid, and you always, when you when I was a little kid, I always wondered whether anyone would ever hear my voice, whether I would ever, you know, amount to anything. And I think, you know, part of that desire to keep learning, that you know, keep the the flames of curiosity fanned 
uh, part of that is to make sure that your voice is heard and that you are doing something that that at least helps somebody. You know, it doesn't have you have to help everybody, but I think a, a big part of having lived a life having lived a life that's that's worth living uh, is, is figuring out some way to help others. Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. Good luck with the project. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Careers by Design, the interviews. Production by Sharon Belden Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello. Interested in designing your own career? Check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Wesleyan University website.